Welcome to the Pathways Podcast. My name is Mary Spiro, your host. Today, we're going to be talking about civics science engagement. And our guest is Rose Hendricks, who is the program director for the Society Civic Science Initiative, which is based here at the American Society for Cell Biology. Thank you for being with me today, Rose. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Dr. Hendricks, what is involved in ASCB's uh, civic science initiative? Yeah, thanks for asking. So this this initiative is um, relatively new, just over two years old, and um, it's really a community of practice for staff and volunteers at scientific societies in all fields um, that ASCB is hosting um, with the focus on what we're calling civic science. And civic science is all intersections between science and the broader society. So it's advocacy and public engagement, it's kind of knowledge co-creation with communities as well as science communications and outreach. It's really all of these things. And so um, this initiative is meant to bring staff at different societies together to discuss and kind of share with each other on these topics. Um, as well as to develop some research and insights that societies can use in order to strengthen all of their civic science-related programs. So I know you've been here with us at ASCB for a couple of years. How long exactly? When did you start? Yeah, I started in the middle of 2019, so just over two now. Okay. And tell me a little bit about how you got here. What is your academic background and training? My PhD is in cognitive science, and I was really drawn to this field, you know, working to understand the human mind and behavior um, through some linguistics work, actually, when I, when I stumbled upon research showing that the many ways that the languages we speak, whether it's, you know, English or Mandarin, and then the, the kind of nuances even within our language, you know, the, the metaphors we use, um, for example, that all of these things really shape the way we're perceiving the world and acting in it. And so um, I, I went to UC San Diego to, um, to do that research with my PhD. And you know, in the course of it, I was researching things like um, the metaphors we use for illness like cancer. You, know, you often hear about someone fighting their disease or um, maybe on a journey uh, with their, their disease. And I, I wanted to understand how does this matter for how we think about it? Um, and so I, I kind of realized that there were so many ways in society that we could apply these kinds of insights um, to really improve understanding of complex issues, to shape the way people are thinking about them, and um, took that that kind of interest to a small research nonprofit here in DC, the Frameworks Institute, where they study a lot of social and scientific issues and how advocates can effectively talk about them. Um, and then I became really interested in even kind of the, the broader picture of how we communicate about science issues. So not just what message should we use, but actually how do we think about um, different audiences and contexts that we communicate in and so when I saw the opportunity at ASCB, which was, you know, really um, vague in a good way, it was very open-ended kind of to help think about what scientific societies can do to push the needle here. Um, I was really drawn to that. And so that's kind of where I landed a couple of years ago. So science communication really is one of the things that I'm intensely interested in since that's basically everything I've done since I graduated from journalism school. Mm. And 
I'm really interested in the concept because you talked about metaphors. I'm interested in the concept of science communication from the perspective of societies. And because as an individual writer, I use metaphors and similes and all kinds of things to communicate scientific concepts that are com- or any kind of complex idea. But societies come from a different place and, you know, they're entities. So what are some of the things that a society can specifically do to better communicate science to mm. the public? Right. Yes. Very interesting. So I think um, there's like at least two major ways that I'm thinking of. And the first is, you know, through people like you, whose roles are to be that um, communicator. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, societies do have this opportunity to um to bridge a lot of different cultures and communities. So by, you know, building relationships with um, whether it's just the media in the city your annual meeting is in, right? I'm sure that's something you commonly do. You start reaching out to them um, or or really other communities. I think that's one opportunity to um, connect some of the research going on within the discipline that you represent to some of the local issues that folks might care about, or even, you know, national and international ones. Um, But a second way that I think, you know, societies can really make a difference here, which is really what my work has been a bit more focused on is how societies really um, equip their members to do some of that work as well. I think, you know, if we think about the whole science communication ecosystem, we need both people who, for whom it's their full-time job like you, and then people who are just kind of contributing in different ways. So maybe they're active full-time researchers, but also communicating, you know, in, in various ways. And, and I think that is one area where societies have already started to tap in, whether it's offering trainings to researchers or even offering actual opportunities like we're setting up a table at this you know science fair what members want to come and participate um, but there's still a lot of of ways that societies can continue to um, support their members in doing their various communications as well so you're talking about training scientists to be better communicators initially yeah training is a big piece of it I think also as I said just kind of like creating the opportunities where members can plug in and do it. Or another example might be when there are online outlets through the society that members can use to communicate um, or Hill Days are another great example where societies really do a lot of the legwork so that members can plug in and share their expertise with the, the audience. Things like that, I think, are, you know, really society's strengths. I still feel, though, that there is a huge gap between what scientists are doing and what the average citizen might be doing. Because even with Hill Days, you're talking to legislators and people who, you know, have policy making uh, roles in our society. And that's not, that's only a few people. So Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, you know, on your local news or your local paper or your local social media outlet, You have got people out there who are constantly asking questions either about their personal health or maybe they're talking about, you know, our current state of affairs with the global pandemic. 
Um, maybe they're worried about pollution and climate change. You know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of very personal things. And I think that there's still, to me, I feel like there's still this huge disconnect between a scientist and, you know, the, the barista working at the coffee shop and getting those two people to communicate in some way, even directly seems like a huge challenge and also keeping the message from becoming convoluted from the source and the an eventual recipient of that message. Oh, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the challenges there is, um, you know, I, I do like the example of the scientists and the baristas that they're very likely coming to, even if they do meet face to face with an opportunity to engage with each other with such different sets of assumptions and life experiences and um, kind of, yeah, worldviews potentially, you know. Um, and I think that that's, that's particularly hard. You know, a lot of scientists, I think, especially over the past five years or so, feel that science is increasingly being dismissed or under attack. And, um, and certainly because it gets wrapped up in the politicization of everything that's happening right now, um, it's pretty reasonable to, to feel that way. Um, but I, I do think, you know, so I, I guess going back to what you're saying, this, this big gap, um, I think a big part of it is that uh, we, or we, meaning those two, the, the scientists and the barista, for example, are just entering in with, with different kind of um, sets of assumptions. And, and perhaps one thing that, that could be done is if we have more opportunities both on both sides to, to listen, I think, to hear what, you know, what others are thinking. I think a lot of scientists have assumptions about general public and even, you know, specific communities or individuals within the public. And maybe some of those assumptions would be upended if we had the opportunity to listen and, and certainly vice versa as well. One of the challenges that I have encountered as someone working with scientists to communicate their science to the public or to even to other people in other disciplines is the concern from the scientists that they don't want their research, quote unquote, dumbed down in order to be comprehended by people in other disciplines or just, you know, citizens without technical background and knowledge. And the other thing is, like I had mentioned before, the convolution of it, where you take a little bit of information that is factual, and then it goes through the telephone game of social media or um, anecdotal evidence, and then you end up with people who believe that vaccines don't work. <laughs> so, you know, like there are just so many challenges. Like, what are some of the specific challenges that you are trying to assess? Right. Yes, I, I would certainly agree with both of those. Um, I think that uh, an, another challenge, I guess, sort of another way of saying what you said is, is the sort of information ecosystem is super noisy, right? Like we're all being bombarded with information from every angle. Um, there's, it's, it's become pretty difficult to sometimes even suss out what is exactly factor evidence and where the opinion starts coming in or, you know, to assess um, validity of different claims. So that, that is a huge challenge for sure. Um, I think also sort of um, thinking about um, one thing to keep in mind is that actually a lot of public opinion research shows that by and large, you know, Americans are really supportive of science. They're excited about it. They support funding science. They're grateful for it. 
you know, there are a few very politicized science issues and, and, you know, the pandemic is probably one of the most obvious at the moment, climate change, as you brought up too. And those are the ones that are most notable to us. But I do think keeping in mind that by and large, you know, Americans are really uh, enthusiastic about science um, is is useful. And then recognizing that where there are those kinds of clashes, um, that feels like a rejection of science or evidence or expertise or all of the above. Um, in a lot of cases, it's it's actually kind of a, a clash of values that, that science gets wrapped up in. So, I mean, just thinking about the sort of masks and vaccine mandates and the, all of the tension about those things, you know, like on the one hand, you could see those as some people are rejecting science. Um, and Or another way of kind of looking at that is that um, many people are really valuing some of their freedoms to make choices about their, you know, their own bodies and things like this, or, you know, autonomy, um, or are feel fearful of sort of a, a big government approach, all kinds of values like these that this actually might be entirely about those things and not actually about science at all. And I think that's a useful thing for scientists who are communicating their work and a little worried about the, the spin or how it might get kind of brought into culture wars is, is to think about like, maybe it's not about the science. It's, it's about other things. Yeah. It's really hard to sometimes tease that out. Mm -hmm. So you're currently involved in a pretty deep research project. Tell me a little bit about that. It's called assessing how Americans want to participate in science. Who are these Americans you're assessing? <laughs> right. Um, yes. Yeah, so this project is um, born out of um, the fact that there's quite a bit, as I've mentioned, of public opinion research about Americans' opinions about science and, and uh, like what they think of different issues, but not really any research asking the question of, you know, what role do does that barista you gave the example of earlier, or do do Americans on the whole want to play? So, for example, um, do they want to have a role in participating in clinical trials or in kind of helping to even shape the direction of what research questions are being prioritized by researchers? Um, do they want to have a role in discussing what we do once we have scientific evidence, right? As we learn more and more about COVID, for example, what role do members of the public want in determining, okay, how do we use this evidence in making our public policies? And so that's what we've set out, set out to find out. Um, who are these Americans? Well, uh, you know, it's very difficult to classify all people living in this country in any way. The way we're studying this is that is sort of two-pronged. First, we're looking at a representative sample of Americans. So by that, I mean, you know, looking at the, the most recent census breakdowns by um, age, gender, race and ethnicity, education, income, lots of different demographic factors. And then we're surveying um, a sample of Americans who are reflective of the country as a whole. And so that's one way of getting at this question. And then the second one is that we're especially prioritizing um, Americans who identify as uh, Black or Hispanic, because in many cases, um, as many of us are well aware, the scientific enterprise has excluded uh, these folks. And so we are um, looking for extra people who identify as those ways to make sure that we truly understand how these communities feel and, and aren't just kind of lumping them in with 
um, Americans as a whole. So those are kind of our two prongs to understand that. Um, we are doing this through two methods. One is a qualitative, which is what we have done so far, where we invite these folks to virtual focus groups to start asking them questions about their views on how they might want to play a role in scientific processes. Um, and we're actually just about to launch a, a large scale um, survey as well. And that will include about 2,600 Americans doing that sampling that I mentioned before. So we can actually kind of get some um, more statistical insights and kind of have a large enough sample that really gives us confidence that what, what we're finding is, is actually, you know, true of what the population thinks. How have those groups you mentioned that have been left out of science, how, how, how has that happened? Right. I mean, racism. Uh, so in, in a lot of cases, you know, the just the systemic um, inequalities that we have in our country make it hard for somebody to participate in science. In some cases, of course, scientific evidence has actually been um, weaponized against these communities and, and used in ways that um, further disadvantage. Um, and I think that just in general, sort of uh, many of the layers of privilege that help uh, one to succeed in and use science still to this day, make it difficult, you know, for, for, um, yeah, especially black and Hispanic, but really all, you know, communities of color and other marginalized communities as well to, um, to be a part of it. We will return to the Pathways podcast after these brief announcements. Here's what's happening this month with the American Society for Cell Biology. Have you registered yet to attend Cell Bio Virtual 2021? Don't miss your chance to network at the largest meeting for cell biologists in the world. Go to ASCB.org forward slash Cell Bio 2021 for information. Registration is ongoing even during the meeting, which starts December 1st. Speaking of networking, you have until November 15th to sign up to host a networking session at CellBio 2021. There are 30, 45, and 60-minute sessions available from December 1st through the 10th. Visit the CellBio 2021 website to create a networking session on the topic of your choice. December 15th is also the deadline to register to attend the 2021 Doorstep Meeting back again this year. This year's topic is the cell biology of neurodegeneration and repair. Go to ASAB.org backslash 2021 doorstep to sign up. That's it for this month. Let's get back to the show. Who are some of your partners in this uh, research endeavor and why are they important? Hmm. Yeah, thanks, thanks for asking that. Um, so one of our key partners is a nonprofit um, called Science Counts, who has expertise in a lot of public polling related to Americans' views and opinions on science. So they bring that, um, that to the table. And then we're working with a firm called Edge Research. They're actually the ones who are um, executing the, the research for us as we design it. So they're you know, moderating the focus groups and launching that big survey. Um, and then also the Association of Science and Technology Centers, in particular, um, ASTC has a network called the Listen Network, comprised of a lot of leaders in science engagement. And so we actually have a whole advisory team, about 15 folks from that network who are providing consistent input as well. 
Um, and this is because they have a lot of um, on the ground sort of science engagement expertise. So they run, say, after school programs or museum programs, all kinds of programs that um, allow members of the public to interact with science. And we're um, really prioritizing their input throughout this process to make sure that as we learn how Americans want to participate and engage with science, what we're learning is really useful to the practitioners who, who could, in theory, be kind of creating new opportunities for that. And then right now, you said, what is the current progress that you've achieved with this research? Right. We are about to launch our big survey, which is <laughs> very exciting and a little nerve wracking, too. Um, and the way we developed this was by first doing a set of focus groups. So the set of focus groups really allowed us to start seeing some preliminary patterns and and really kind of develop some hypotheses like, OK, it seems like, for example, um, folks are talking a lot about concerns about transparency within the scientific process. So this especially comes up when they think about billionaires funding science and like, wow, that's a lot of power that that person has. Um, but even it came up a lot in terms of uh, COVID vaccines where people are like, I, I don't have the expertise to, to look at that data and make assessments for myself. And so um, how can I trust that, that you know, there's adequate transparency here? So that's just one example of a theme that came up through the, the focus groups that we then turn into um, survey questions so we can kind of quantify the extent to which this view is held within society, who holds it, what are the implications of this kind of view. Um, so that's where we're at. And then at the very, you know, once we get those survey results, it's a pretty long survey. I think it will probably take people um, at least a half an hour to take. Once we kind of crunch all those numbers, we'll actually have one more round of focus groups where any of the sort of um, statistical insights we find from the survey, we can we can dig into a little more deeply and probe sort of sort of for a more holistic understanding of of what those um, those data are telling us. One of the things that I find super fascinating when I talk to people who are not scientists is is their lack of understanding of what the scientific process is, and also how much they think that they want they they say oh i want to hear both sides and when you talk about the scientific process that's that's actually not quite how it works can you talk about that a little bit so that we can sort of delve a little bit deeper into why the scientific process is not just black and white or this side and that side i see this all the time like i want to hear the other side the 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 opposing view Mm -hmm. I'm so I'm so glad you brought that up because I was actually thinking about that earlier when you asked about some of science communications challenges and I and I forgot to bring it up. So I think, um, you know, particularly the the idea that the scientific process is um, self-correcting. Right. And so like we that we're meant to learn things that were not quite right in the past that we thought and improve on them and build iteratively. Um, I think that is especially one key insight that. Um, has not exactly permeated our, our large-scale consciousness as a society. Um, and perhaps there's something that formal education could, could improve on in the future. You know, I, I personally remember memorizing a lot of facts, and that was science class. And so um, that process did not teach me that science is a, a constantly evolving process where we're learning what we got wrong before and how we can better understand things. Um, so I think that that's, you know, super foundational. 
Um, and then when we think about the, um, the ways that science communication now lands, you know, and, and again, COVID is the perfect test case where we're learning as we go. And so like wiping down your groceries made sense at the very beginning of the pandemic. And then we learned, well, actually that's not maybe the best way to, to, you know, flatten the curve as we would say, um, uh, back in 2020, um, but yet others who think, wait, but science is a collection of facts say, why is the story changing? And that can undermine, you know, their confidence in the messengers who are sharing that or, um, in the overall messages. And so I do think that that is, is absolutely key. And it's, you know, again, something ideally we would be learning from the beginning in school, but given that many of us made it through school without that kind of experience, it's something that science communicators can play a role in is, you know, really, um, especially when communicating about some kind of change, like, Ooh, we we've learned this new thing or, or this, this wasn't quite right is to also emphasize how that's what, how it's meant to be. And this is actually a strength of science and not a reason for us to, to be less confident, um, yeah, it, it is, it's challenging because it's nuanced, right? And, and communicating nuance can be hard, but I do think it's absolutely essential. So without giving away any spoilers, because I know you're still partway through this research project, what are some of your preliminary insights into what mm. you're seeing? Yeah, so there's a couple that I think are especially important. One is, you know, we've probed just what are people interested in and curious about, um, and we find two really clear buckets. Of course, individuals are interested in both, but one of them being super practical stuff, right? A lot of people are concerned about plastic pollution and climate change and um, all kinds of illnesses that affect them and their families. And they want science to play a role in, in you know, um, addressing these. Um, and then there's also a lot of curiosity in what, what we're kind of calling for now existential um, kind of questions. And so, you know, understanding humans place in the universe and like, are we the only life form and, and why? And those kinds of questions that aren't actually going to make a difference in our day-to-day -day lives, but are um, still really important to us. So I think that's been useful to know. It's not, it's not only the practical stuff people want to, to learn about. Um, and then another is actually thinking about um, what barriers there are for folks to participate in scientific processes and decision-making, you know, um, when we ask people, what would be your ideal way of engaging with science? Lots of people are really interested in some kind of firsthand experiences, whether it's learning with an expert, seeing how they do their experiments, or, um, you know, just getting to have conversations with experts. But then when it's kind of like, well, why don't you do those things? There are lots of reasons why they don't, you know, uh, money is one kind of maybe obvious one, um, but it's not even just like, oh, well, to, to, to go on SpaceX, I would, I would need a, a ton of money, but it's also just to have internet access, right? So that would allow me to um, hear the scientists doing their own live stream or whatever um, that costs money. Um, but I think perhaps the most interesting barrier and one we hadn't anticipate is what I'm calling like not knowing what's on the menu. So, um, you know, members of the public would say, oh yeah, I like the idea of engaging with science or participating in science more than just consuming it, but I don't even know what that could look like. You know, so I think for researchers who have some of those opportunities and those would be things like 
um, dialogues with communities about, hey, what are the priorities you want us to research? Or what are some of the research questions that would help your community, those more active things? Um, members of the public generally don't even know that those are options. And so if they are options, you know, that's something that I think science communicators um, could make a lot clearer and easy to find as well. One of the things I, I thought was such a great idea were the science cafes uh, that I've learned about and attended. Um, but science cafes are by and large always attended by gray haired old white people. So uh, yeah, like learning about those opportunities that aren't just for the, you know, middle of the day on a weekday, <laughs> you know, for the retirees or whatever, you know, I would really love to see ASCB even take a, a greater hand in doing more of these public engagement kind of things. And we do actually have, we have two, we have Compass grants and we have our public engagement grants and those things do actively uh, fund and facilitate those types of engagement opportunities. Why do you think this research is important overall? All right. Yeah, it's a broad question. So I'll go really big. I, I think that, you know, our future depends on um, sort of reciprocal relationships between science and the broader society. So it certainly depends on us um, taking scientific evidence and using it in constructive ways. You know, if we want to um, stave off climate change, we need to listen to a lot of evidence and we need to put it into practice at every level, right? From the international down to the like household level. Um, and uh, the sort of like opposite direction too. So science also needs to reflect what um, our public priorities are and our public concerns. And, um, and it needs to involve as many different perspectives and, you know, world experiences as well, life experiences too. And so it's not just, we need to keep pumping out the science and everyone needs to listen to it, but the science needs to be responsive and reflected, reflective as well of the, the people that it could serve. And I think this research is helping us to better understand that second piece. Like what would that look like for science to really be responsive and inclusive um, so that it's actually in a position to be trusted and usable and used by uh, our society as a whole. Um, and so that, that to me is sort of what, what we stand to gain from this um, and, and yeah, why I think we, we need to learn more about this topic. I think that kind of dovetails into what I was going to ask, ask next, which is basically how do you plan to use these findings? And you, you sort of have answered that question, but what else do you plan to do with them? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, very concretely, we hope that these findings will get into the hands of people who are in positions to facilitate public engagement with science in all kinds of contexts. So for example, um, museums, so people who are decision makers or, you know, exhibit designers, program designers at museums, as they start to understand what is it exactly that members of the public want to learn, do, participate in, weigh in on, um, they can incorporate those. I think also um, our policymakers, again, at every level, you know, if they start to understand what the topics and ways that, that different communities and members of our public want to um, contribute to decision-making on science-related issues, they can create forums and ways uh, ways for that to happen. So really, I, I think all the sorts of um, professionals and institutions that are at these intersections of science and society um, have opportunities to to hopefully to run with what we're learning. And I and I do think actually a big challenge 
probably over the next few years, we'll be um, imagining exactly what that can look like and helping people in different um, institutions and, and fields to, to use the work that we're doing now. I could literally talk about these topics with you all day. And I, I just sort of had this uh, funny idea of like, wouldn't it be cool to have, you know, instead of Billboard's top 10 albums or songs, we could have, you know, the National Science Foundation or ASCV or whatever, top 10 trending scientific questions mm. as, as posed by the public. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, as determined by Dr. Rose Hendricks. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And then we'd need to hear how the scientists are following up on them and running, running with those questions. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hendricks, for talking with me about this important topic. And I wish you luck on finishing that research project. Is there anything else that you want to share with me? Um, no, you know, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to, um, to have this conversation today. And I certainly, you know, we'll make sure as our research wraps up that um, ASCB, ASCB members and, you know, the scientific community more generally has really quick access to what we're learning and, and how they can use it. So thanks so much, Mary. The Pathways Podcast is a production of the American Society for Cell Biology. Thanks for listening.